As we come back together this morning, we continue our uh, look at the Minor Prophets. We're in Haggai this morning, uh, a rather short book, a wonderful book, uh, a wonderful book uh, that I'm sure is sometimes trotted out right as one begins the exciting uh, church process of maybe a building program. Nothing can be more exciting than, than building uh, a new building uh, to bring unity and harmony to a body of Christ. Um, but we shouldn't see this necessarily as the physical building of a building. This isn't, of course, ever about, with God, the structure itself, though they can be functional and useful. It is always about this deeper understanding of what it means to have a life centered in the reality that God delights to dwell with His people and to be mindful spiritually and physically of that reality because it is not as simple as uh, God being a spirit and therefore wherever we are, God is with us, which is wonderfully true. And yet, even though that's true, God regularly provides physical locations which He says He dwells in in such a way as to be with us. And what does it mean to embrace the idea that since we are both spiritual and physical beings, that there is a richness and a beauty to place, to space, and to the fellowship that comes from being in Christ. And so at his best, Haggai is again bringing our attention hundreds of years before Christ to the importance and significance, yet again, of this thing called the temple. This morning, uh, I want to open our time by reading just a few verses from this short book. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Hear now God's word. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of his house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we desire to rest in you, to know what it is to dwell in your peace in ever greater degrees. We ask, Lord, that you would, through the preaching of your word, give us opportunity to see in what ways, Lord, we hold on to those things which can never give us peace, which rob us of the richness of fellowship with you. And Lord, whatever is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if any of you have heard, again, I'm usually 
not very well connected to what's going on in American Christianity. So it, it, I find about, about things a long time after they've been a big deal. But I don't know if you've heard a man named Francis Chan. He's a church planter in L.A., planted a non-denominational church. I don't know, about 30 people started it, ended up being about 5,000. And about several years ago, three, four, five years ago, four years ago, he walked away from the mega church and started working in San Francisco in much more of a... Uh, uh, house church model. And so I, I saw some of the interviews uh, in preparation for this sermon and looking at certain things about temple and, and place and building the body of Christ, which of course you know is coming as a major theme of what it looks like to be the temple in our day and age. And the interesting interview that I heard was uh, his talking about various factors that led him out of the mega church world, and some of it was just the financial overhead and how much money was spent just trying to be uh, a church, and uh, whether or not funds may be used better, and so on and so forth, and all interesting and fascinating questions. But for him, the final straw, he said, was uh, a time when, uh, very close to his ending, uh, his time as a pastor uh, at that church, was that he had baptized uh, a young man who'd come out of a gang situation, and uh, he'd come to church several times, and he'd been a part of it, he's clearly come to Christ, and within a few months, or uh, close to a year after his baptism, uh, he was all but absent uh, from the church, and there was a special relationship with his pastor, and he began to notice his absence, and he went and found him, and he said, look, where are you? What's going on? And the man's response was, I thought being baptized was a little bit like getting beaten into the gang that once I was in, I was a part of a family, not what the church is, which is something very different, which is a building and an event that we assemble at once a week. And what he was trying to express, and and I, I certainly didn't do it terribly well, is the idea that in a gang there was more of a sense of family and community on a 24-7, you know, rest of the week sense, that there was more community within a gang than there was within the church. That the absence of a kind of sense of fellowship and reality, of sharing life together within the community of faith, outside of what happens on Sunday morning, was striking to this young man. Could he have had uh, grandiose ideas? To be sure. Are there certain advantages to being gangs where most people are employed by the gang, which means you get to work together and be a gang? Yes, there are all kinds of ways where we might unpack this young man's assumption and perhaps rationalize why it wasn't exactly a fair critique. And yet when we see the early church, there is a way in which that community of faith and its interconnectedness and sharing of life was profound enough for Luke to recount it on more than one occasion as being such that the entire city noticed that the way they lived and loved together was significantly different than the culture in which they lived. It became a measure of their attraction. We come to this book And the temptation, of course, is to think, as David did when he desired to build a temple for the Lord, that this is all about whether or not God thinks he has a grand enough house. 
that whether we honor him enough by giving him paneled walls and golden chandeliers. And that, of course, is never God's desire. And as he sends Haggai back to God's people to encourage them to build a place where he could meet with his people, to have that fellowship and community, to be the hub of what it meant to be his people. We're going to look at the difficulties uh, and the realities of building the temple and its symbolism, and that it, what it means to have a holy place built by unholy hands. Uh, what is it going to take to cleanse the temple? Uh, what is it going to take to make it holy? So first, uh, we're in 520 B.C. Jerusalem has fallen. The temple has been destroyed. Babylon did a wonderful job of that. Babylon gets... Uh, goes the way of most empires, all empires. It falls apart. Uh, the Persians come in, and now uh, we have uh, the great Persian empire ruling over Jerusalem. Uh, Cyrus has just uh, died, but he was the one who initially sent folks back to the Promised Land. He allowed the return of the exiles. And what had happened is the first wave of exiles had showed back up in the Holy Land, and uh, there was various conflict. We can read that in the book of, um, right now I'm going to forget the name, Ezra. And uh, we hear about the challenges that the folks faced. And God then sends Haggai to encourage them that even in the midst of the difficulties they faced, there is a certain priority, a certain reality of the rhythms of life. Uh, The critique in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, is thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood. I'm sorry, that's where he talks about building the temple. Up a few verses, my apologies. These people say, uh, time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to, to uh, the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time for yourselves, uh, it is a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. Um, it's not as if shelter's a bad idea. One of the great difficulties of building the people of God, uh, building the community of faith, and building the temple itself is the pressure that there's always something that we need to do for ourselves. There is this challenge that says, I need to take care of me and mine first. As if that is somehow exclusive to building up the temple of God. And Haggai's point is, these are not mutually exclusive. Of course, God doesn't think that the people should be uh, impoverished or not have a roof over their head, that they should build God's house first and then worry about themselves. It is always this rich understanding that as God delivers and provides and blesses, that the response is we take care of those things that God calls us to take care of, which is his people and our families. And in our day and age, and the challenge uh, that often comes is that it, it always seems reasonable to put our families before the community of faith, before God's temple. 
And it always is troublesome, of course, because we usually think cult when we think put this thing, this human organization, this religious thing in front of the needs of our families and the needs that I have within my own financial and retirement and uh, life planning needs. And we develop philosophies and ideas that in some way put these things in conflict with one another. And that's what Haggai's coming to address. You've come back, you're trying to just get your feet stabilized, and there's a certain point at which it feels unfair for God in the midst of that to come and say, you need to build my temple. You need to build the place that physically represents where you and I fellowship together. Because remember who got you out of Egypt. Remember who is returning you back to the promised land. Remember who your king and your God is and that which binds you together as my covenant people. You don't know who you are without the temple because you don't know who I am without the temple. You are handling the pragmatic day-to-day business of wondering if you can have a roof over your head and food on your table absent an understanding of the centrality of what it means to be God's people. It's that subtle way in which we put our heads down and get the things done that need to be done and we forget that there is a bigger context in which we live, which is the context of God and His kingdom and in our day and age, the community of faith. Not the church building, but the church gathered. The human beings who make up the living stones. All of those wonderful things that Jesus says when He transitions the temple from a particular building in a place and fulfills all of the promises we read that Haggai spoke about shaking the very foundations of the world in such a way that the earthly treasures come in to his temple because his temple begins to grow. His temple becomes the very people of God and he dwells in them through the Holy Spirit. And we, it's hard, I'd like to do a better job of sort of, you know, teasing the story out, and then there's the big surprise ending where we're all the temple of God, but hopefully you know that well. We can't read this passage without realizing the connection for us today is how much do we invest in the community of faith and how much do we invest in the parish and the church in which God calls us to exist in? To what degree do those temporal needs that we have that press in on us regularly that may be as fancy as how many vacations I take, or it may be as mundane as whether or not I can make certain medical payments or have any reserves to take care of my car if it breaks. It may be a great range of the ways in which we can put our heads down and try and get done what needs to get done and show up once a week to church, and to be grateful to be there, but have little understanding of what that group of people in that building means to me the rest of the week. And that that centrality of a living temple where God dwells as being the center of my understanding of my existence and the center of my understanding of how God works with His people, to have that absent is to miss the power of the gospel, 
to miss the power of the kingdom of God. We are saved into a family. God did not run into Egypt, grab one guy, and then run across, and then grab another guy. He brought the whole people out. That wasn't just because it saved time to bring all of the Israel out in one big group. He brought them out as a group because they were his people. He saved a nation. The beauty is that they were all individuals in the midst of that, but do not lose the covenant promises to God and his people. It is such a pressure on us in the United States with our hyper understanding of individualism and the inadvertent and unfortunate ways that focus on the family has robbed us of our understanding of the family as the people of God creating space for the single and the widow and the orphan and those who cannot have a family that is man and a woman and 1.2 kids and a two-car garage and a house. That that is a wonderful blessing, but it is not the only family. And in fact, we must have a family that is big enough for everyone. And so he brings a nation out. He brings a people out. And he calls them into a covenant relationship. And they become his people. And before Christ comes, they need a place to meet. And it's called the temple. And it is not so much the glory of the building, but the glory of what that building points to. It's why that building had different spaces in it. To represent the holiness of God the access to God, and the desire for all nations to gather. You've heard me say it before that the challenge of the temple that Jesus comes to judge is that they have filled up the place for the nations. The Gentile, the court of the Gentiles, has become a place of commerce. It is the place where the money changers were. There was no longer space for the other in the temple. Jesus cleanses that so that all can come. A temple for all nations. God's people respond well to Haggai's admonishment. They recognize that they do need God as the center of their lives and the defining characteristic of their community, and they come together. And they begin to build the temple, and God is encouraged and blessed by it. But Haggai comes and says, okay, great, we're building the temple. We're putting God's community and God's covenant first. We believe that our families and our community, including those like Naomi, who no longer have a family, can be engrafted in by some great man like Boaz. We can build a bigger community that engrafts everyone into this temple. We're focusing on that. We're building the temple, not just focused on ourselves and our immediate needs. God begins to bless, but a question comes. How do you keep the temple clean? How can you keep the temple clean? So Haggai comes in, in chapter 3, I'm sorry, later in chapter 2, and he says, okay, priests, what happens when a dead thing touches a living thing? Does it become unclean? And the priests say yes. And the good news is the, the priests pass several Q&A uh, questions, and they get the right answer. So the good news is the priests were well informed. The bad news is, my stars, what are we going to do? 
all of the power and the pain of the Old Testament law in one form comes flooding back in. We have this exciting return. We have this exciting rebuilding of the temple. And then we're reminded of what has happened throughout Israel's history, that death and sin find us and follow us like the plague. You can't walk around without becoming unclean, without touching something that messes up your ability to walk into the temple. No one's heart is clean, no one's hands are clean, and we're left again with a rather sad wrestling with how on earth, even if we build this community, even if we build a building, even if we build Christ into or God into the middle of our lives, how will we keep it clean? And we jump ahead to the Gospels because we're so close, just a few pages. And what do we see in Jesus? The answer to the problem of uncleanness. In passage after passage, Jesus touches unclean things. He stays clean and they become clean. He heals the leper and Jesus does not become a leper. He touches and prays for the dead and they are raised. He picks up a little girl, blesses her who's been dead. She gets up. All of the sudden, the laws of sin and death are undone. There is a fulcrum in history in Jesus' ministry. And up until that point, we rightly recognize that there's no way to stay clean. We pray for God's righteousness to come at some point. All of the saints look forward to some point at which the problem of being dead and decaying and unclean will be resolved. And there's Jesus touching. Sometimes just in someone's desire to be clean. The woman who touches him in the crowd. He touches you and you become clean. Problem solved. There's hope now. There's hope that death and decay don't have the final word. Therefore, this new living temple formed in Christ who can and does make all things clean, we too can begin to embrace and experience the joy of what it is to know the power to touch things and to have them become clean. It's no wonder that ancient Israel found it hard to reach out to pagan nations. Uncleanness is all around. The seduction of their gods, the seduction of their power and wealth we should and rightly can understand Israel's reticence to be very welcoming and open to the pagan nations. My stars, doesn't that flip on its head after Pentecost? Paul's running around touching one city after another and making it clean. Walking into Athens and pointing out who the unnamed God is. Touching slave girls who we're prophesying because of demonic powers and makes them clean and transforms. He breaks out of jail by the power of the Holy Spirit. The jailer becomes a believer. All of the sudden, you can touch things and they become clean because of the Holy Spirit, because of what God is doing. Life actually breaks loose. The temple is actually growing. And one of the greatest tragedies is when the church believes that it can no longer spread life and light when it believes that it must stay behind walls, terrified that everything around them is going to make them unpure. Do you really believe that death and sin are stronger 
than the one who touches the leper and makes them clean. The one who became the cornerstone. The one who was rejected. Who, from a worldly perspective, looked as unclean as you could. Beaten, bloody, naked, hanging on a cross. And what he touches becomes clean. We sing it. It's weird, right? Christianity is weird. Sin had left a crimson saying, but what? The blood of Christ washes it white as snow. Tell me how that makes sense. But it doesn't have to. We don't have to justify that to the world. What we know is that blood does make us clean. And we need not fear. Haggai's ministry, his encouragement to God's people, is not that they would build a temple and go inside it and shut themselves in. But their ability to get out of their own need to build their own houses with cedar planking and wonderful accoutrements in their own home, their only hope of getting out of their own home was to go into the presence of the Lord in the temple and to begin to see the power of God that was larger than them. And he could even promise that that king would come. And of course, Zerubbabel is uh, the promise. We've already talked way too much about Jesus, but if I don't mention Zerubbabel and then go back to Jesus, it feels like I haven't done the whole text. Zerubbabel is mentioned, of course, in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Turns out Haggai was right. That's through David's line, through Zerubbabel, who becomes a signet ring, a promise of the power of God. You know what a signet ring is, right? Signet ring is, I have power. I have someone else's power. They give me their ring. I can go into a foreign land and say, I have been sent. I have the ring. Jesus wears that ring, comes from the Father. The son of David. The greater son of David. The one who becomes the very one who brings all of the promises that answers the priest's problem of how we are made clean, who answers the problem of how the temple stays together. It stays together in the holiness and beauty and servanthood of Zerubbabel's many great grandson, who becomes for us the one who gives us the signet ring. Think back. Two lost sons prodigal comes home, the younger son comes home, what does the dad give him? A wonderful raiment, wonderful jacket, beautiful robe, and a ring. He gives you that ring. The Holy Spirit is the sure reality that that ring is yours. A ring to be used to make things holy to bring life and beauty. That's the calling of the community of faith. That's what that gangster thought he was going to get. An entire group of people with one mission, not to sell drugs, but to give Jesus. One calling, one focus, one glory, one joy, one family to be those who bring the light and life, the power of the rubble's grandson, the signet ring, to make all things Christ's, to expand the temple, to be the blessing. Haggai longed for it, he prayed for it. We live in a time where that power is ours. May we delight in seeing it go out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We do know what it is to desire community, to be a temple. Lord, may we 
again, through the blessing of the women's retreat, through the means by which we gather together, the Friday fiestas and the deck nights, worship on Sundays. Lord, may you unite us in ever greater degrees as those who know as a community of faith the joy of what it means to be your living temple in and through the world without fear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.